couple summers ago, uh, Nancy and I visited Gettysburg, and though we'd lived in Virginia for 42 years, we had never gone up to see that historic town and battlefield. In addition to the actual battlefield, there were two other significant things that we took in. How many of you have been to Gettysburg? Okay, most, a lot of you have been to Gettysburg. One, if you remember, it was, uh, was called a diorama. And you went in this room, and in front of you is this model of, of the entire area, the town and the surrounding hills, little round top and big round top, and, and little, little soldiers. And you can see all over the, the whole place at once. It's sort of a, uh, a good picture to allow you to visualize the troops that were moving around during that three-day battle. Uh, the second exhibit was called the Gettysburg Cyclorama. And you went in this building and you stood in an area and there's a 360 degree painting depicting Pickett's charge on that fateful day of July 3rd, 1863. But you got just a panoramic view of all the action. And that's what I want to do today uh, with several significant events as Jesus' earthly ministry begins to draw to a close. Now, if you're reading with us through the book of Acts this summer, then you entered this period of time in Jesus' earthly life, this end of this last week, and we'll continue on this week. Uh, so this is going to be a bit of a travel log, a little bit different this morning, kind of a travel log through chapters 18, 19, and 20 of the Gospel of Luke. So if you would turn over there, and it'll, it'll be uh, good and important for you to kind of have this in front of you, Luke chapter 18. If you're grabbing a seatback Bible in front of you, page 1116. These chapters tell the story of Jesus' rendezvous with destiny. Uh, this whole section is part of God's redemptive plan accomplished through his son Jesus. It'll culminate at the cross and then the empty tomb. But this is why Jesus came. This is his destiny. Um, the whole section is, is, is part of what God's doing. Uh, Dictionary.com defines destiny as the predetermined or inevitable course of events. And the scriptures give clear evidence of the fact that the hand of God is behind all of these events. Everything that is happening and that Luke is recording in his gospel, God had planned and ordained. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up there in Jerusalem and he tied Old Testament prophecies to their fulfillment in Christ. And here's what he said in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Luke records three times when Jesus tells his disciples of his coming death and resurrection. Twice recorded in Luke chapter 9, and then once here in chapter 18. So look at Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 31. Luke writes, and Jesus, taking the twelve, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. 
and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, keep your finger here in Luke 18 and go to the next book, John's Gospel, chapter 11. John chapter 11. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And as you can imagine, that created quite a stir. Look at chapter 11 of John's gospel, starting at verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, that is, raising Lazarus. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples." And now the countdown begins. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The time of the Passover had come, and so Jesus now begins to make his way to Jerusalem, passing through the city of Jericho. And we have a map we're going to put up so you can see where he is. He's over in Ephraim, and now he's come down along the Jordan, coming to the city of Jericho. As he reaches the outskirts of the city, he encounters a blind man. We know from the other gospel accounts that the man's name is Bartimaeus. And he cries out to Jesus for mercy, and Jesus restores his sight. And then he says to him in verse 42 of Luke 18, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. There's an immediate response from the crowd. Look at Luke 18, verse 43. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus now goes from healing Bartimaeus and enters into Jericho. And here he encounters this wee little man. Do you remember the song? His wee little man, Zacchaeus. And this man hosts Jesus into his home. And there he accepts Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus, in response, declares once more what his mission was when he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. This is the driving force behind his rendezvous with destiny. 
It's now six days before Passover. And Jesus comes to the little village of Bethany. It's the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. John 12 records the account of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with expensive oil and wiping his feet with her hair. Judas, who would betray Jesus, raises a fuss here about this expensive perfume being wasted in his mind when it could have been given away, sold, and used to help the poor. Now, of course, remember that Judas held the communal money pouch. And so he was just really looking for another opportunity of more money to be able to pilfer. That was his concerns in this. But Jesus said to him, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And then John inserts this note. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom they raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's the next day that Jesus enters Jerusalem, declaring himself to be Messiah. And, and the stage is now set for a number of incidents and teachings that leads ultimately to his rest and death. Look at Luke's account, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here's the map again. Now you can begin to see he's made his way north and then he's coming across the Mount of Olives and will then cross down below the Kidron Valley and enter into Jerusalem. But I want you to imagine the crowd that's part of the entourage. This is not just Jesus and the twelve. There was the crowd in Bethany, the crowd that followed them uh, there from, from Jericho. Uh, there are now people that have heard what's going on. We read from John's gospel in Jerusalem. They're questioning, is he coming? They're coming out now because they've heard that he's been in Bethany and is now making his way down. So there's this, there's this amazing crowd here that's gathered about two miles, not even two miles now from the city. And while they come, they begin to chant words that are drawn from Psalm 118. This is a messianic psalm. 
Uh, that psalm was chanted at the end of the Passover meal and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Glory in the highest, they, they, they begin to sing. Sort of brings back to your mind, doesn't it? The voices of the angels announcing to the shepherds the birth of a son. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Now the crowds are obviously caught up in the moment. Did they really understand what they were chanting about? Probably not. Well, maybe so. Let's look here. The Apostle John tells us that the people cut down palm branches and they began to wave them as Jesus moved through their midst. It gives us an insight perhaps into what it is that they were seeing, how they were interpreting this entry into Jerusalem. Uh, both Matthew uh, well, let me back up. Um, the, the, the idea of the palm branch is really interesting because it was actually the symbol on the coin of the Second Maccabean Revolt from 167 down to 160 B.C. on the attempt to overthrow the Romans. So perhaps what they are doing there shows and, t and, and sort of tips their hand. They're looking for a political Messiah. They're looking for a warrior. They're looking for someone, a king that's going to come in now and cause the people to get into an uprising and throw off the Romans. That's probably how they viewed their prophetic scriptures. This would be a conquering king that would be coming, but it's far from that. Did you notice how Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem? It says that he's riding the foal of a donkey. Both Matthew and John in their accounts show how this is the fulfillment of a prophecy made 500 years before when Zechariah described the Messiah coming into the holy city. Look at this from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is a very significant thing. You see, the donkey in Palestine was a noble beast. But kings rode horses, war horses, in times of war and battle. A king only came riding a donkey in times of peace. See the disconnect, what the people are looking for? But Jesus comes on the back of a donkey instead. Jesus is not entering Jerusalem as a conquering warrior. He's entering as a humble messenger of peace. He's coming as a servant to suffer and to die, not a king coming to conquer and rule. Everett Harrison, in his book, A Short Life of Christ, writes, It speaks plainly that Israel's king on this occasion comes not in glory, but in lowliness. The divine order established in the Old Testament prophecy is not violated. The king must suffer before he exercises sovereignty. He is the servant king riding in to keep his engagement with death. So imagine Jesus making his way from Bethpage with all the crowds from Bethany all around him, before him and behind him, people making their way out from Jerusalem, hearing that he's about to enter the city, um, this one who had raised Lazarus from the dead, we have to see him. What an act of courage. Don't miss that. There's a price on Jesus' head here. Um, 
The religious leaders, remember in John's gospel, they're plotting his demise. They're planning to arrest him. And Jesus and his disciples, accompanied by an ever-growing crowd, make their way over the Mount of Olives. And here's a rendering of that trip, coming from Jericho and then heading on up to Jerusalem, crossing through Bethany, and now just going over the top of the Mount of Olives. Somewhere in the Kidron Valley, uh, above there, Jesus stops. Someone has just given a rendering of that. You can see in the lower left corner, they've stopped and are now looking across the Kidron Valley. They can see the brilliant uh, dome of, of the Temple Mount in the distance. When that happens, let's look and see what happens. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." J. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, writes, Messiah, as the Prince of Peace, came on the appointed day to bring peace to the nation. This, then, was the day of Christ's official presentation of himself as Messiah to Israel. Christ was identified before the nation as Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated as Messiah at his temptation. His glory as Messiah was revealed at his transfiguration. But it was at his triumphal entry that Christ made an official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. And he weeps over the city. That word in the language of the New Testament means a loud wailing. It's the kind of lamentation that was expressed observing the death of of, of a loved one, of another person. He is literally burdened to the depths of his soul when he sees it. And Jesus sees into the future. It will be less than 40 years when the 10th Legion of Rome, under the generalship of Titus, will come in and lay siege to Jerusalem and will utterly lay it to waste. Not one stone will be left upon another as Jesus prophesied. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Matthew says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Luke tells us that Jesus went straight to the temple where he overturned the tables of the money changers, where he drove out those who were selling animals for the sacrifice. They were probably in the court of Gentiles, making it impossible for Gentiles, the only place that they could enter into the temple grounds, even to keep them from worshiping. Jesus drove them out. And then Matthew says that the lame and the blind came to him in the temple, and Jesus healed them. Very clear messianic action. And then he left the temple, and he returned to Bethany for the night. 
Now, over the course of the next several days, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, returning to Bethany at light at night. But he's there and he's teaching, he's performing miracles, he's dialoguing with the religious leaders. And during those times of teaching, he tells a parable that directly relates to his rendezvous with destiny. Look at Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. And they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, the picture of the vineyard is a familiar one to the Israelites. You know, this, this parable here relates very closely to one of the very few parables recorded in the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah chapter 5. And in that chapter, God says to Israel that she was planted by him as a vineyard. But the vineyard did not produce grapes. It only yielded wild grapes. And so God says, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness but behold, an outcry. Isaiah's song was about the failure of the vineyard of the nation of Israel. Jesus' parable is about the failure of the leaders, of the managers of the vineyard, those who should have been caring for the vineyard, and yet they didn't. The point of the parable is very clear. The servants that are sent by the, by the owner, these are the prophets that God had sent to Israel, trying to call them back to repentance, call them back into relationship with their creator. But the, they simply mistreated and cast out and killed and rejected the servants. Now, it was possible in that day, in that culture, for a tenant farmer to claim land if the landlord was gone for three years. It's possible that the owner has, has lost interest, has forgotten about it, maybe has died. In this story, with the arrival of the son, they might have concluded, because the son came, that the son's father was dead. 
And so their solution is, let's kill him. And then it's ours. In the parable, the son who's killed is obviously Jesus. The actual event is going to occur in less than a week's time. But Jesus, again, foreshadowing his death at the hands of the religious leaders. Now, step back just a little bit and think about this. I know it's got in my Bible, maybe yours, it says at the top before that, that paragraph, the parable of the wicked tenants. And that's true, but to be honest, I, I think it's more about the patient owner. The owner who time and again sent his servants to collect what was rightfully his. Uh, the, the, the owner who was patient, who continued to give them another chance. That, that's really, to me, the picture here. The owner is patient. He's forbearing with these tenants. He's giving them further chances. We also learn that the owner's patience had limits. And he would ultimately exercise his authority and power to bring justice to bear and would deal harshly with those wicked tenants. I think we can draw out a clear application from the teaching of Scripture that the God of love and mercy is also a God of holiness, of justice, even retribution. That his justice will not abide forever. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But let me try and pull it all together if I can this morning. We have two polar opposites of responses to Jesus. One is demonstrated by Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. They encountered Jesus. They responded in faith, believing in him and his power and ability to heal and to save. The other is the Pharisees. On one hand, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus experienced the grace of God, but the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, they reject what Jesus was offering to them. These ones who are most familiar with the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and all that told them what they should look for in the Messiah coming, and yet they rejected it all. They rejected Jesus from the beginning of his ministry all the way to its end. In fact, they harden their hearts against them. Jesus continues to reach out. We see the patient love of God reaching out to them over and over again, showing them with works of miracles that he was the Messiah, teaching them about the kingdom and kingdom principles, but they rejected him. They rejected everything that he had. They hardened their hearts against him. They considered him their enemy. In this last week of Jesus' earthly life, we see both the depths of God's love and mercy. We also see the depth of man's sin and rebellion. Quite a contrast, isn't it? Well, I want to just conclude with three observations that I read and study that text and will come away with three things for you this morning. First of all, God is a compassionate, loving, and patient God. From the depths of his sovereign love, he set in motion a redemptive plan created in the counsel of the Godhead before he even created the universe and then foretold all throughout the Hebrew scriptures and then fulfilled in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And he reached out to people over and over again, sending them prophets, calling them back to their God, to their creator. 
And he reaches out to you and to others today over and over again with the good news of forgiveness and and, and grace. So my question is, have you responded to God's offer of salvation, to the gift of eternal life? That's why Jesus had a rendezvous with destiny. Has your response been that of a Bartimaeus or of the Pharisees? The second thing I would observe is God's patience is not indefinite. He will one day return to judge. I want you to turn over. We can leave Luke's gospel. And I want you to make your way toward the back of your New Testament to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you've got a seat back, Bible page 1300. 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what Peter writes, starting at verse 1. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do not confuse God's patience with indifference or inaction. God will act. Folks, he must act. To maintain his holiness, one day God will establish his righteous reign over everything that he's created. And that day will be one of judgment for those who believe and those who do not believe. Now, I recognize that most of you here this morning have responded to God's gift of salvation. And so, when Peter describes this, what does that mean for you? Well, look on. Look at verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity Amen. Peter says that we are to look forward to the return of the Lord. 
The scriptures declare that Jesus is going to come back again, not on the back of a donkey's foal, but this time it will be on the back of a war horse. Turn to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 19. I told you it would be a travelogue today, and we've been doing some traveling. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw, John writes, I saw the heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming back. But he's coming back to do battle this time. He's coming back to rule, to conquer. Leads me to the last point I want to leave you with this morning. Everyone must choose. Believe or reject. This was true with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. People were being forced to make a choice. And so it is with us today. To put off a decision is simply already to decide. So the question as you leave this morning is, have you trusted in Christ? In the sacrifice that he made on the cross, on his rendezvous with destiny on that fateful day outside Jerusalem. Now, if you've done that and are already trusting in him to do that, God has given you the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. I don't declare it as a minister. The scriptures declare it because God has said that's what's true. Now, if not, you stand under the judgment of God. And that day when he comes will be a terrible day. I must be honest with you. You see, the message of the gospel is a message of good news. John the Apostle said that Jesus came to his own, but they wouldn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I don't often close a message with a call to place one's trust in Christ. Uh, a lot of those messages are geared that way. But this message really calls for that kind of a conclusion. And so I'm going to ask that we bow in prayer. And I just want to ask you, have you trusted in Christ? Do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven? That if you were to die today, that you would spend eternity with Christ? If you're not sure, if you've never done that, maybe you've been in church much of your life, maybe this is the first day you've been in church. But the message of the gospel that Jesus died for you to forgive your sins, if that rings true in your heart, would you then just trust in Christ? The words that you might use in the quietness of your own heart aren't important. God knows your heart. But maybe this would help just to be able to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I admit it, and I give up every way I'm trying to save myself. I thank you that Jesus went to the cross for me. 
And in faith then, believing that you will honor your word, keep your promise, I invite Jesus into my life. I trust in you for my salvation. God, forgive my sins. Give me eternal life and begin your work within me. For those of us that have known Christ, may this be a time of affirmation. Lord, thank you that you are Savior. Thank you that you are my Savior. Thank you that you live in me and that you are patient with me, that you forgive me all of my sins. God, may my life be different this week because of the truth that I belong to you. I am your child. And Lord, thank you that you always keep your word. And these things I ask in Jesus' name.